I think there's a different understanding of what it means to be a student these days. Mm. And I think there's a growing sense of being responsible to a particular place and its surroundings and all the politics that are inherent within. Welcome to the March 21st, 2019 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. That's the voice of Sean Leonardo, a multimedia artist who's also the Pratt Institute's visiting fellow. This episode, he's joined by Jane South, the chair of the Fine Arts Department at the Pratt in Brooklyn. They're here to talk about an event that's taking place in April, Open Exchange Belonging, which Leonardo is moderating. Curious sounding name, right? Well, I'll have Jane explain it herself. Open Exchange Belonging is one in a series of events that we are having this year at Pratt, which really began with a conversation that I had with Sean Leonardo. So when I arrived at Pratt, it's very clear that Pratt is very well known for its rigorous education in all different kinds of art forms. One of the things that I noticed that we hadn't really figured out mm -hmm. was social practice or any kinds of artworks that engage with communities. So Sean, we've set the scene. You come in. So you tell us what happened. Sure. Well, what I found so compelling about the invitation was the idea that I might look at the entire institute through the lens of my practice. Mm. So the work wouldn't be contained in coursework mm -hmm. and that level of engagement with the student body that I could actually plot various interventions and programs on campus so that I might have some level of uh, ripple effect, whether it be student faculty or staff. And so as an entry point, and I should also back up and say that I am of that neighborhood. Mm, I've lived there now for great. six years. And wow. so it was really exciting to me to understand what might constitute Pratt community because it was literally in my backyard. Yeah. And so that was my starting point meeting with various faculty, everyone from the executive offices onto facilities and public safety to student body, MFA, BFA, to various staff members as well. So it sounds like Pratt really embraced this. I like think so, fully, and it's yeah. been incredibly supportive and, and to really start off with difficult conversations. And my initial question was, what is Pratt community? How do wow. you define that? Yeah, I mean, you know, often colleges feel disconnected from the greater community. Now, you're walking into this situation of this unique project, you know, that Jane, I'm sure, spearheaded in her unique Jane way. And now I'm curious what the interest was for you in your own practice. Well, my interest really had to do with your initial question, like how does Pratt see itself in the context of a broader community? Mm. But before you could actually ask or even answer that question, you have to understand what how one defines community. Right. And inevitably, those conversations would move to ideas of safety of oh. feeling safe. Thanks. Right. So where'd you start? So I started just with one-on-one -on -one meetings. Okay. And those conversations all in its own way started leading to this idea of what it means to feel safe. And so I started instigating those definitions. Hmm. And that led to a performative conversation that took the form of the long table. And we'll now bleed into a number of different performative-based workshops that very that stem from my practice. Right. Jane, this is a pretty lofty undertaking. Of course it is. <laughs> we are an art school. Um, 
I think underlying all of this, though, is a need and a responsibility that we have, which is often overlooked because we spend a lot of time creating the conditions for students to make work, right? Mm -hmm. We have shops. We spend a lot of time creating the conditions for them to acquire knowledge. We have seminars. We have lectures. How much time do we actually spend creating the conditions in which we can have dialogue. And right. what concerns me, you know, as an educator and as a citizen, is that because so many of these dialogues happen in mediated spaces, social media, there is not that sense of a careful, considered, thoughtful, complicated negotiation around issues that really need to be addressed in that manner. So I think that what Sean is also bringing mm -hmm. is a creation of spaces in which we can do that and in which we can all learn how better to communicate with each other about these things. Sean, so now these are so lofty. I'm trying to figure out how you tackle this. I mean, I know you did meetings, but this is such a complicated topic. Jane wants to throw nuance in it. Thanks, Jane. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that made it whole much tougher for everyone else. But, you know, that's good because it's your job. How do you negotiate that? So this is the nature of my work. I look at it in terms of long engagement in difficult conversation. But in order to do that, particularly in an arena like academia, mm -hmm. one has to set a different type of stage, which plays with people's expectations and perceptions of what and how that dialogue might take place. Mm -hmm. And so the long table is a perfect example of a non-hierarchical format, which readjusts how people are in space together mm -hmm. and how people feel they can contribute to a difficult conversation. Because so often what we're used to, particularly in a school environment, is being talked at. And so how do you, going back to Jane's suggestion, how do you create the conditions for people to feel that they can exist in space and say what needs to be said? Because when we think about belonging, that is not, while it's lofty, it's not necessarily entirely positive feeling. In Good order point. to belong, yeah. one must also feel that they can engage through complex and difficult issues where people will be uncomfortable. In order to do that, you have to set a platform in which no one is an expert, hmm. in which both the teacher, student, faculty are on the same playing field. Playing with hierarchies. I That's like right. that. So now, when were you the least uh, comfortable, actually, Sean? Most recently? Yeah, most recently. I can answer that very directly. In the nature of my work, I often have to navigate power. Right. Because for the sake of my community of young people that I'm advocating for, I do have to sit down with law enforcement, mm. judges. I do have to have a presence in the court system. And the way I often address this for the young people that I work with is that while I operate with the system, I am not the system. But in order to do that work, I need to really believe in the discomfort of sitting down with power in spaces where I don't necessarily belong. What I loved about this conversation was we were talking about the big ideas that often drive artists and art institutions to really do things outside the box. But the bigger question here is also, what is the role of the artist? So I asked Jane for her opinion. 
I actually believe that part of the role of the artist in the kind of cultural fabric is to be an irritant, right? Is to be that kind of, you know, have that little critical distance that questions everything, you know, like that annoying kid that goes, why is the sky blue? Why is, you know, why do we have shoelaces? You know, those really fundamental questions that we forget to ask because we get enmeshed into the fabric of things. So I think maybe the role of a fine arts department within an institution is also to be that little bit of an irritant, right? Hmm. So, you know, hey, I'm going to bring in this guy who actually is going to make us look at ourselves and is going to want to talk to the director of public safety and is going to want to talk to the people who actually enable us to have this beautiful campus by cutting the lawns and taking out the trash. You know, also look at our structures because it is really challenging to organize these kinds of events within an academic timeline and around an academic structure. So again, you know, I don't think that, and I also, as I as I am about to say this, I recognize that this could be seen as a kind of cop-out answer, but I'm going to ask myself that question anyway, um, which is, you know, are we looking for a solution here? Now, I think we are, again, back to this phrase, trying to create the conditions in which possible solutions may emerge. But Mm -hmm. similar to the way that an artist engages in the studio, right? You don't go in there saying, I'm here to make X and I know exactly what X is. You go in there with a series of questions and maybe even not a question, an impetus, a drive, and you start doing things. So the way I often like to think about it is, is there a better question to be asked? So rather than to think product-oriented or Mm -hmm. solutions-based, if I enter this community, which is not necessarily my own, Mm -hmm. I might start with a prompt rather than a series of questions, Hmm. knowing that questions will emerge that will be much more resonant to that community in the context of Pratt. And so this long trajectory, longer trajectory of deep involvement is just that. Let me start with a prompt and see what emerges. Let's see where this question or series of questions starts to move. And so with the long table, which was a sort of performative conversation where anyone can assume a seat at the table at any time and also tap individuals out to assume their place at the table. So do you want to explain that a little bit? Sure. So let me back up and I'll take you on the sort of trajectory of what brings us to this uh, open exchange event. So we started with an event last fall called The Long Table, in which the initial prompt was precisely, how does one feel safe? The invitation there is that 12 people sit around a dinner style table, Mm -hmm. sans the food, Mm -hmm. and that we simply just hash out how people think about that initial prompt. At any point, anyone around the table may be tapped out by someone that is sitting along the periphery. So literally just tapped on the shoulder? That's right. To assume that seat. Hmm. And so what happens is that no one is able to assume all the airtime, nor take priority. Because at any point, someone may choose to contribute and assume your seat. And so what out of that intentionally is just what starts with one prompt Mm -hmm. turns into 12 questions. Got it. What I have then been invited to do and how I will continue this process is to take specific words that are at the center of each of those questions and look at them more deeply. So I'm conducting a series of workshops, performance-based workshops, storytelling-based workshops called Testimony, Mm -hmm. in which I invite members of the Pratt community, both staff, faculty, and student and the student body, along with community members and neighbors, to come to the table 
and attempt to embody each other's narratives around the singular word. Words like invisibility, anxiety, Mm -hmm. vulnerability, all these words that emerged out of this question of safety. And rather than just speak on it, working in pairs, an individual will attempt to embody an entire narrative through a performative gesture. The intent being, when you tell me that you feel vulnerable, what does that actually look like? So now let's talk local. Let's talk about places. Yeah, sure. Let's, where do you feel like you belong? And where do you feel, and both of you, I'm going to ask both of you. So, and where do you feel like you don't belong? This is a really interesting question for me, Ed, which actually points to why I even do this work. Mm-hmm. If I were to answer directly, I'm from Queens. Mm-hmm. And that is where I feel I belong most, but not for reasons that most people might understand or articulate in their own kind of connections to place. I feel like I belong most to Queens because no one belongs. It is the most diverse nexus of the universe. And so with all the change, with all the diversity in people, in language, in taste, in sounds, I feel most comfortable being lost in all of that information, in all of those senses. And so I have grown up with a distinct comfort in navigating and moving through communities because I've never really felt anchored in a particular type or sense of place or person. The nature of living in Queens is that you walk down one block and might hear eight different languages. Right. So difference is not even something you think about. You sound like a rootless cosmopolitan like me. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, we know, we know you don't belong. Well, yes, it might be evident <laughs> when I open my mouth that I am not a native of Brooklyn. Um, really? No, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? So it's such an interesting question because I think, I think the short answer is I belong in New York. And I don't belong in London because, mm. you know, I moved to New York 30 years ago. Can't believe it. And I didn't decide to emigrate, but I absolutely remember the first time I visited New York. Um, and this was in 1988. And if you think back, that was still Thatcher's Britain. It was before the oh, YBAs. Right. Yeah. You know, it was a whole different time. And, you know, we would sit around in, you know, dank, grotty student accommodation arguing about who was going to make the next cup of tea because we were all waiting for the pub to open because pubs used to close in the <laughs> afternoon, you know. Anyway. I wouldn't um, know that. You wouldn't know that. <laughs> so, uh, and but I remember leaving on a visit to, to New York and I remember emerging from the subway station somewhere on the Lower East Side uh, after dark. And literally, there was one of those weird funnel things, you know, with the smoke all coming or the steam all coming out of it. And there was lights and it had been raining. And, you know, it was, oh, my God, you know, lights, music, action. And I just thought, why am I there? I want to be here. Right. So now let's talk a little bit about those nuances of belonging, because Queens, I mean, I I think I totally get what you're saying about Queens. But then the landscape of the city is very different. Brooklyn is not Queens. And now we have Hudson Yard as an example. You know, it's like another space that I think a lot of people already start and talk about is this sort of sanitized space that not everyone will feel welcome in because it's very luxury based and all these types of things. Now, Is that a growing trend, you think, Sean? Absolutely. I think what's pervasive, particularly in New York City, is the way in which architecture can actually be very exclusive. Mm. And what you're noting is that these 
quote unquote public spaces, the way that they render certain bodies invisible by way of hyper visibility. Mm. So when you think of a place that is meant to be welcoming, it's a misnomer to think just by creating space that someone will feel a sense of belonging. That there's a way in which the culture, the invitation, all of the senses, the, the way in which someone is brought into the space is not being considered. And so I think what you're pointing out is that in, you know, particularly in New York City and the hyperdevelopment that is around us, there's really no consideration of the way that cultural permanence or what was there sort of can influence the architectural makeup mm. of development. And, you know, I can go on and on in how, in which certain ideas, voices, bodies are not valued than that type of erasure. Mm. But you're absolutely right. I think what one thing that we have to think about and to bring it back to the Pratt context is that simply because Pratt is situated within this particular neighborhood of Brooklyn doesn't mean that it engages its surroundings. Right. So now when we're talking about belonging and just this general feeling of belonging, often we talk about the individual, but the community is often not looked at as a whole. Do you know? And it's just some of the conversations we're having making me think about that, where often we're talking about how an individual feels like they belong, but how about their community? That's what sort of, you know, gives them their nourishment intellectually, spiritually, otherwise. And often we're not looking at that community. Now, where's that breakdown happening? Is it the sort of, you know, the old argument of it being sort of a neoliberal individualism? Is that where we're, mm. is that the problem here? Or is it more structural? Well, I do think it's both. And if I if I want to relate anything is that this very idea of coining something to be specific, Pratt community, you have to question what gets lost in that frame. Mm -hmm. And so within the community of Pratt, there are multiple communities. Right. And so one strategy of sharing space, of creating curriculum, of creating programming, of addressing issues, one strategy is not going to be a catch-all in which everyone feels that they're being spoken to respectfully mm -hmm. and that they're being invited to the table. So to address the nuance. What was the biggest surprise of this project, first of all? I think the biggest surprise was how the, there are certain institutional rules um, that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the honest truth. There was a moment at which I became aware of a particular set of rules. Then, then I thought, uh, you know, and they are... The system comes out. They are laws, right? They, you know, these are federal, this is federal reg legislation around, around conversations and what might be revealed in conversations. Really? There is something called mandatory reporting. Oh, right. Um, at right. Pratt and at right. every institution, uh, right. you know, federally legislated. So, so I was like, like, oh boy, okay, now I know that. Let's make sure we, yes, we wow. are aware. And so that is, I can imagine that being, so Sean, when you discovered this, I'm assuming you queried these things and then Jane had to come back to you, well, I've discovered that we can't quite. It's just an added layer to, to navigate. Yeah. You know? and, 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 you know, this is familiar to me. Okay. I mean, I do come from a museum education background, mm -hmm. and in my roles at various institutions, I've attempted to be an agitator. And so I often do confront this sort of legality, but also bureaucracy of place. So why do all the coolest people come out of museum education? 
Also, the most generative programming comes out of museum right? education, right? Because we are offered a platform to take risks and to have uh, conversations around amazing artwork that are not being had. It's amazing because, you know, I, I think I was naive when I started in this field thinking, oh, no, that's what a curatorial does. But I also find often it's the museum education departments that are doing the most interesting, cutting edge, you know, generative programming. And it's just, it blows my mind. And I just love seeing that. So now, what did you learn from that experience working in museum education? Well, a number of different things. But one thing, and I will connect this to my experience at Pratt thus far, that continues to surprise me and really pull me toward this type of socially engaged practice, is that given the right invitation, the right platform, with the right format, people will be incredibly generous. Hmm. If you just set the stage in a slightly askew way where people are not quite sure, which is the unique power of art, something that is unfixed, mm -hmm. people will wholly give themselves over to a situation. Wow. I, I want to believe that, but can you give us an example? <laughs> sure. I'll give you maybe two. One in recent in the context of Pratt and, and mm -hmm. maybe in the context of other practice. But, uh, you know, I'm enacting a social practice course for the first time at Pratt. And it was a somewhat of an unknown. We knew that it was being driven by student interest and dialogue that was taking place prior to my arrival. But in setting that stage and using the course really as a laboratory for ideas, because mm -hmm. each student does have to enact the project, what has been incredibly surprising is how ready these students were to look at themselves much, much further outside of just being a Pratt student. Hmm. and how they all arrived with real intent and purpose. And so they've, in a short amount of time, have conducted some really beautiful projects. Why do you think they were ready for that? Well, I think there's a different understanding of what it means to be a student these days. Hmm. And I think there's a growing sense of being responsible to a particular place and its surroundings and all the politics that are inherent within and I think there's a good core constituency of students that are ready to understand that their art practice can be a way of extending outward, of connecting, and of navigating difficult issues. And I think that also is a way in which, you know, the world is communicating to young people that they should not just sit aside. Right. So now, Jane, I'm going to turn it to you because, you know, I, I've known your work, which I love. I've always loved as a sculptor and as an artist, the work you do. But you come from a more traditional educational background. And now you're at an institution that's really trying to shake things up and try to do these types of things. Now, I want to learn a little bit from you and how you've been able to bridge that and understand that, you know, there is a value to this more traditional education, but it's clearly not the only thing we need. Well, the weird connection point is through performance. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree in theatre. Hmm. And partly I did my undergraduate degree in theatre is because I went to a very traditional school, which was, you know, rather Victorian. We wore pinafore dresses and bowler hats. Can you believe it? Wait, did you really? Yes. Yes. I don't, I don't even, I have to Google those. Hat. I don't even know what they are. You don't know what a bowler hat is? Oh, is it the ones with Magritte, the... Magritte, my dear. Oh, Magritte, yes. those bowler... Yes. Wait, wait, who wore those? <laughs> All of us girls. We wore bowler hats in the winter, and in the summer we wore straw boaters. I mean, this is, you know, I have to actually just... just <laughs> wait, you just I blew my to, mind. Yeah, you I, just blew the, my mind. Well... 
you know, I went to a school that when it was founded was extremely progressive because it educated girls right. to, right, right, but, right. you know, it got stuck on this track of educating girls to become, you know, doctors and lawyers. And so if you were at a school like that, like me, and you weren't very good at all of that, and you just wanted to, you know, make make things, you were kind of, well, well you know, show dear, mm-hmm. sort of, she's a bit of a disaster. So we did theatre at my school. That was really the creative outlet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's how I ended up by going to undergrad in theatre, which I am so glad I did, because actually theatre is interdisciplinary. Right. Right. By its very nature, it is. So I constantly think about what I've learned in theatre in relation to that from a curricular level of Mm -hmm. how things are interdisciplinary, you know, how we need to really make sure that we that we build those bridges. And again, not just sculpture and painting and video, but sculpture and science and math. You know, video and the humanities. So I think that that's the other thing that this April 9th event will be very unique in regards to. And the thread that Sean is providing through the prompt is around something that each one of them has uniquely negotiated within their own life, within their own work place, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. So because one of the things that when, you know, we were talking about this sort of event and I was looking into it was this idea of the walls being broken down towards the external community from the institution. Now, do you think some of those walls have been broken down, Sean? I think we're only now beginning to tempt the ways that we can do that. Mm. And so, again, go, to go back to my earlier suggestion, to understand the ways that Pratt community might extend itself out, you have to first understand who Pratt community is and what are its interests its concerns, its mm-hmm. differences, its problems. And I think when we get to this event, Open Exchange, one thing that these incredible individuals are able to provide is a model for how they've bridged out to communities. And also how they've done that through controversy, through mm-hmm. difficult circumstances, through an ever-changing context. And so after sort of deciphering and decoding the ways in which we understand safety and belonging on campus, how can we invite practitioners in to model how they've confronted those issues? Hmm. So what would that look like now? I mean, I'm trying to get a little concrete for people because I think there's like such interesting ideas, but I think there's a potential here for others to emulate this kind of thinking. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more detail if you don't mind. Sure. So this event is again a non-hierarchical format Mm -hmm. in which these five seemingly disparate practitioners have all been invited to the table through a single prompt okay. the word belonging and let's actually introduce who those five people so it's uh, jamal lemmy tom finkel pearl hank willis thomas anna bermudez and niv acosta that's right and i'll just go into a little detail for each individual to understand how we're engaging this topic Mm because i think that's important jamal young man that i met in cleveland who after one of his best friends died in the parkland shooting Mm -hmm. decided to pick up the mantle of creative director for the march for our lives movement and I can, just to give you a little teaser into the approach that each one, each individual is taking, Jamal has to really think head on in the ways that that movement is intersectional and what voices are being brought to the table and also which direction, which voices are amplified in leading that movement Mm. and also providing the sort of scope of art for that movement. So 
belonging being very central to that practice. Of course, then we go to Commissioner Tom Finkelpearl, who is now the Commissioner of the Department of Cultural Affairs, longtime director of the Queens Museum, and how he generated the culture plan through all this controversy and how he really thought it incredibly important to highlight the assets, the diverse assets throughout New York City as a way of learning and moving forward in terms of belonging Mm -hmm. is incredibly important to this conversation. Hank Willis Thomas, artist and activist, and one of the forces behind, along with Eric Gottsman, one of the forces behind Four Freedoms, and thinking that artist should have a place at the table in civic discourse and in setting the stage for conversation, political conversation. Yep. And then finally, and excuse me, Commissioner Anna Bermudez, who actually echoed this sense of belonging in describing how arts plays a role in the mm-hmm. Department of Probations was outstanding to me and very much dictated the course of this. And they have artists in residence at that department, don't they? They do through yeah. what is now called the Neon Network. Yeah. So it's amazing. Yeah, it's, I mean, for those who don't know, in New York City, a lot of artists are actually, you know, artists in residence in departments in, in departments, the city. Which was also which a Tom Finkel Pearl yeah. initiative. Yeah, he was, he was definitely the one that expanded that. But I mean, it's pretty unique. And I think it's something we're seeing emulated elsewhere, too. Absolutely. And to think how, to think that, and to hear how Commissioner Anna Bermudez was addressing a community mm-hmm through this lens of belonging for probations is just outstanding. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, last but not least, artist and activist Neva Costa, who most recently developed a project called Black Power Naps. And thinking about how the restorative power of rest and taking breaks has traditionally been reserved not for communities of color. And how then taking a nap or just setting aside a time for rest is in and of itself a radical act for black bodies, black and brown bodies. What you're left with then are five models, but Mm -hmm. also five questions that will be turned onto the audience to respond to and further distill down to questions that are, are more relevant to the Pratt community. I love it. None of, none of these people produce objects that are sold in the market. So that's right. Is, <laughs> that's right. I like that. I mean, talk about help, helping people think differently. Okay. Now I'm going to finish off asking each of you if you have one question you'd like to ask the other person that you Ooh. haven't had a chance to ask yet. This is really putting us on the spot, right? <laughs> it's my job. It's my job. <laughs> um. Okay. It could be about the project. It could be otherwise. I mean, just in terms of, you know, because I I think... I have uh, one too now. Okay. Oh, wow. I love it. Okay. Jane, you start. I want to know about your parents. Oh, my God. Wow. I like it. (laughs) Straight there. Let's hear it. I mean, we we don't have to do this, Sean. That's okay. If you want a different question. Oh, come on. Yes, we do. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I'm happy to talk about my parents. And maybe this gives people a little insight as to why I do what I do. My parents are not from this country. My father's from Guatemala. My mother's from the Dominican Republic. They were both sent over or both brought into this country by one parent that started their lives very differently. Mm -hmm. My grandmother on the Guatemalan side was a caretaker for many, many years before building up enough money and the paperwork to send over for my father and his Mm -hmm. siblings. And on my mother's side, my grandfather, my abuelo, came over and actually was a teacher of English to to Spanish-speaking students. 
and again, accrued enough money and developed paperwork to bring over my mother and, and her siblings. But what's important about this story is that they met on the subway. What train? If I remember correctly, it was the R train. They both had the same route to their two different colleges. And I guess they saw each other frequently. And my father, who's younger, developed the courage, built up the courage at some point to finally approach my mom. And so, like, we want to talk about face-to-face engagement, right? That sounds like social practice right there. This is, like, real shit right there that doesn't happen (laughs) anymore, right? It's, like, on the subway, that's the last place you want to meet someone. Particularly now that everyone is, like, closed in on their screen. Well, back then, there was a possibility. Put the screen down. That's right. I love that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. Okay. So now your question for My Jane. question is it's more connected to this project, but I think points to your leadership, Jane. What if we fail? How do you look at failure? Oh, well, I mean, I, you know, I I am a big Samuel Beckett fan. So what is it? Fail fail again, fail better. I mean, you know, there is no such thing, Sean. I mean, obviously, we need to be prepared to, we need to have oversight over these conversations, right? But when you were filling out, I'm guessing when you did this project, you did have probably goal. I mean, every proposal tends to have like goals and types of things. So now what would success look like potentially to talk about the inverse of his question? Yeah, I mean, I, I think success would look like these kinds of practices becoming embedded into mm. our institutional fabric, right? So, again, I think it's really important that we sustain these kinds of platforms. So, what I wouldn't want to happen is, you know, fortunately, Sean is with us for another year, is that then, you know, Sean moves on and wah, wah, wah. So, it's a two year project. Well, initially, yeah, initially oh, it was wow. one year and then, you know, he fell in love with us and couldn't possibly I have a feeling it was mutual to <laughs> possible. Um, you know so so again I, I think I think that that's great because I actually think that the second year is necessary and Sean is also our 2019 project third fellow and in a nutshell project third is a new residency 10-week summer residency mm-hmm. where we offer a physical space on campus, which is also a very visible public space, to collaborative groups who, and it's very loose, this, who in some way, shape or form, engage with communities outside of Pratt. So BFA, MFA, PhD, they were our first artists in residence, and they were focusing really on pedagogical questions. And this is also where I would like Pratt to be known for its generosity, Well, thank you, both of you. Thank you to Sean and thank you to Jane for this wonderful thing. And for those who want to attend this event, it's Open Exchange Belonging, an interactive event led by Sean Leonardo. It's on Tuesday, April 9th, 7 to 9 at Pratt Institute at the Student Union, which is at 200 Willoughby Avenue. So get there. And there will be food. There will be food. RSVP. Um, Yeah, RSVP. You know, all the information's online. I'm sure they can get it. Thank you again, Sean. Thank you to Jane for coming here and making me feel like I belong. Can I say that? (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, come see what we're up to. I really appreciate the moment too. Thanks, Rick. Great, thank you. Thanks, lovely. The music this episode is falling into place. 
a new single by Jonathan Gersitano. He's also a member of the rock band The Dead Deads. A special thanks to Gersitano for providing the music for this week's episode. I'm Harag Bartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week. Falling, falling into place